North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. I hope you guys are doing good today. If you have your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 1 and also John. We're going to go back and forth between those two, Mark and uh, John. We're going to conclude our more series here uh, this morning. and We're going to take a little different approach to it today. Um, it's going to be a little bit more methodical, um, more teaching. We're going to kind of go through like this uh, scriptural journey here uh, today. And so um, I really feel like the Holy Spirit wants to do something in our hearts and in our lives. And so I just, man, I've been praying that he would prepare us for this. So Mark and John is where we're going to be in just a minute. If you've ever moved into a new house, we just recently moved here, and, uh, but if you've ever moved to a new house, um, you know that, that as, you're, as you're going into this new place, this new house, this new home, this new location, you know that there are, are some things on your list. There are some things on your I, I absolutely love list, and there are some things on the I would absolutely love to change list. You know what I'm talking about? Like you walk in, you're like, oh, I love this, I love this, I love this, we want to change this, and, and some of those things kind of get pushed on the back burner we'll change those in a couple of years and some of those things you're like this has to change immediately so we don't go crazy and one of the things on on our we would love to change list when we moved to this new house was the kitchen counters Melissa thought it would be better if we had some kitchen counters that were a little less green and so that was on our to-do list and so we moved in, we, we got settled a little bit, and, and we got some things in order, and we decided it was time to get a bid on these new countertops and, and figure out what we were able to do. And so we go to the place, we make the decision, uh, we, we set the install date, and they told us, well, you know what, if you remove the old countertops by yourself, it's going to save you a little bit of money. And we're all about saving money, we're stingy, frugal, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and so Melissa, you know, said, okay, well, we can get those countertops removed ourselves. And, and the guys that we were working with, um, they, they said, you know what, it's usually pretty easy. It's just a couple of screws. You unscrew those screws. You pull them right out. It's simple. It's usually pretty easy. Now, I'm not a big construction guy. Um, I, I don't know a lot about this stuff or this world. And so I wasn't aware that usually pretty easy is code for almost impossible. Okay? Usually pretty easy is code for you are going to come this close to losing your salvation you're probably going to punch something and you're most definitely going to cuss. If you don't say it out loud, it's going to bounce around in your head. That's what usually pretty easy means because I got there and, and we got the date and, and they said, yeah, you can get those things out in 15 minutes. And so I thought, oh, I got plenty of time and the date was coming tomorrow. And, and I get under there and I unscrew things and I go to pull it out. And what I didn't realize is that the, the back of the countertops where there was that little two to three inch ledge that, that went up the back wall on the back um, that had been super glued to the wall and that back part of the countertop in a way that I can only assume was because it was important to the structural integrity of the house because that thing would not budge at all. And man, I tried and, and I know I'm not a big guy, but I felt like I could at least budget and I got there and I was pulling on those countertops and I was lifting like like the, the leg shaky lift, you know what I'm talking about? Like the, you're shaking and nothing is budging. So I get angry at the countertops and I get mad and, uh, uh, you know, get uh, nothing. I felt like sword in the stone, you know what I'm talking about? 
Like, it's just not coming. I tried to sneak up on it and do it. I wiggled it, and, and, and I just I could not get that stinking countertop to budge. And so finally, I thought, oh, I'm just going to have to take a different approach. So I ripped off some of the backsplash that I didn't want to rip off. And, and then I got a hammer and a little crowbar behind it, and, and it didn't budge. But I put a nice, good-looking hole in the wall instead, and, which was okay because it was only one of 30 holes that I put in the wall trying to get all that stuff out. And, but we continued and we pressed forward and um, no, no matter how bad I wanted or Melissa wanted those new countertops, it wasn't happening until we created space for the new ones. You know what I mean? We had to get rid of the old and make room for the new. We had to make room for more. And removing those countertops, it wasn't pretty easy. It was actually really difficult. Um, it was messier than I thought it was going to be. It was harder than I thought it was going to be. It was more frustrating than I thought it was going to be. And there were moments when we thought, or I thought, that this was just a huge mistake. We had made a bad choice. We should have just left it alone. All we've done was made things worse. But in the end, you know, as, as most of these projects do, it ended up turning out great, and we love it, and we were happy with our choice. But we couldn't bring anything new in unless we made room for more. Does this make sense? We had to make room. We had to get rid of something that didn't belong so that we could invest in something and invite something in that we wanted. The title of the message this morning is Make Room for More. And through this series, we've been asking God for more. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know this. More of his anointing, more of his blessing, more of his spirit. Just, just more of what he wants for us in our lives. More of his goodness. And we're asking that God would give us everything that, that he has for us, that, that he has planned to give us. And, and we're going to begin to ask for those things. And we're not going to let our lack of faith limit God's ability to bless us. We're not going to allow lack of obedience to limit God's ability to bless us. We want more of him, more of him, more of him. And I believe that in 2018, that's exactly what God is going to do for you, for this church, for your family, for our community, that God wants to do more. But today I want to talk to you about something that may seem simple at first. It sounds pretty easy, but in reality, this has the potential to be one of one of the, the things that is keeping you from experiencing more of Jesus. The problem, the thing that keeps us from experiencing more of Jesus is that there's just too much of us. There's too much of us. And see, in order for us to, to invite in more of Jesus, we have to do the, the hard work of getting rid of some of us. Because Jesus can't come in if there is too much of us. If we're going to keep asking God to fill us up with more, then we're going to have to remove some of the stuff that is taking up too much space. If you want more, then you're going to have to actively, we are going to have to actively and even sometimes painfully make room for more. We have to make room for more. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at several passages of Scripture. And, and, and we're going we're gonna to walk through this uh, story in the New Testament. And, and it is one of the, the, I believe, one of the best stories of, of somebody sacrificing who they are for the sake of of Jesus. And so Mark chapter 1 verse 1 is where we're going to focus on today. 
and we're going to spend the majority of our time together just walking through Scripture. And, and so, again, today there's not going to be a whole lot of application points, but, but if you can follow along in the story and, and really just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you through Scripture, I believe that he has, it has the potential really to do something powerful in your life today. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> this is how the Gospel of Mark starts. It says, this is the good news about Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. This is the good news about Jesus, Mark says. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so, so Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, this is how he opens his letter. This is how he starts his book. This is the good news about Jesus. Right away, he's telling everybody what this story, what this book, what this gospel is about. This is about Jesus. We are talking about Jesus. Mark says, as you read this book, know that the, this entire book is about Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is God. You're going to read about the works of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, how Jesus came and died on the cross and saved us from our sins, how Jesus is the Son of God, and, and Jesus is eternal, and all of this is about about Jesus and how when we commit our lives to Jesus, it changes our future, it changes our legacy. Everything in this book is about Jesus. Verse 2, it began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. And this messenger is, of course, yeah, now you're like confused, right? Not Jesus. This is, this is the weird thing. So, so Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, this story is about Jesus. This is the good news about Jesus. And then verse 2, he says, I'm going to talk to you about a messenger that I send ahead of you, and this is not Jesus. And it says, and he will prepare a way for you. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Verse 4, the messenger was John the Baptist. This is so strange to me. Mark says, I'm going to tell you this story about Jesus let me talk to you about John. Wait a second, I thought you were gonna to talk to us about Jesus. Yeah, I am gonna to talk to you about Jesus, but I gotta to talk to you about John first. The messenger was John the Baptist. And it says, John, he was, he was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. So we've got to stop and consider this for just a moment so we can understand the complexities of what is really going on here. So let's talk about John and what we know about John. John, John the Baptist, John, he's, he's a strange dude. He's, an, he's a really odd, unique guy. He was kind of a loner. He was an introvert. That he, he, We get this impression that he lived in the woods all by himself. He was, he was kind of a mountain man kind of guy. This guy that was wearing really strange clothes. He, he wasn't culturally cool. He, he wasn't culturally relevant. He didn't understand really the complexities of the political and the social and economical environment of the day. And, 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 and John, it seems, was just really out of touch 
Um, he didn't stay up on the latest fashion trends. He didn't stay up on the latest, you know, in, in our culture, that would be like the technological trends. It would be like John not only didn't have an Instagram account, he didn't even own a smartphone. You know what I mean? It's like, really? How can you survive without a smartphone? And some of you guys are thinking, like, what is Instagram? Right? How many of you are thinking, what is Instagram? Anybody? Some of you in here? You're not brave enough to admit it, are you? Right? You're thinking, I just figured out Facebook, and all of your kids and your grandkids are thinking, yeah, you're like John the Baptist, a weird, crazy, backwards mountain man, if you don't know what Instagram is. But that's how fast everything moves. But this was John. He wasn't very cool. He wasn't very connected. He was kind of this loner, this crazy, backwoods mountain man that lived off by himself. The Bible tells us that John ate locusts and wild honey. That John was just kind of a scavenger. Like he would walk around and he would just eat what is available. And in my mind, I kind of take John out of his, his first century context and put him in, into our world today. And, and I kind of see John um, as, a, as a big old bearded man um, driving his old beat up Ford truck down the gravel road. You can, you can kind of see this, can't you? And as he's driving down the gravel road, and he looks out the window, and he sees something laying on the side of the road, and he hits the brakes real hard, and he comes skin to a stop, and the big gravel dust cloud goes rolling out over him as he jumps out of the car, and he sees a, a day-old possum sitting on the side of the road. He picks it up, and he throws it in the back of his truck, and he says, that'll make good eating, you know? And that's kind of just who John is in my mind. This is how I see John, and now... That may not be at all who John was, and, and he may beat me up when I get to heaven for saying this, but in my mind, this is kind of who we see is John, not really connected, kind of, kind of strange, kind of peculiar, and, and about, when he, when he was about 30 years old, um, he, he sort of emerges out of the woods and, and into the spotlight, and, and he begins to preach a message. He begins to talk. He, he starts, you know, going around preaching and teaching. And, and at first, people came to see the messenger because he was an odd guy. He looked different. He wore strange clothes. And, and he, he was just a little bit strange and, and crazy. And eventually, as they're listening to him preach and, and listening to what he says, and, and I believe more than that, seeing the, the anointing and the power of God permeate out of him because here's the thing about when when people step into God's anointing or when people step into God's plan or dream for their life it doesn't matter what they bring to the table when you are walking in God's anointing for your life you will be effective because you are doing exactly what God has called you to do and it doesn't matter what you look like what you sound like what your education is like when you step into God's anointing God will bring the results and so John steps out, he begins to preach and teach, and I would imagine people are looking at him and listening just because he's a strange weirdo, but then the message begins to grip their heart. The message begins to change them. They come to see the messenger, but they're hooked with the message of God. And the Bible tells us that all of Judea, everyone say all. The Bible says that all of Judea came to listen to him, including all the people of Jerusalem. And so John's impact is massively significant. 
all of Judea, this, this entire region came to listen to John. And all of Jerusalem, all of the capital city came to listen to John. It, it would be like, it, it would be something similar to say, um, uh, somebody came up and started preaching a message and all of Nebraska came and listened to him. Including all of Omaha and Lincoln. And, and you know how kind of Nebraska is, is set up with Lincoln and Omaha and then everybody else? You know what I'm talking about? It would be like saying all of Nebraska came to listen to him and all of Lincoln and Omaha, everybody came to listen to John. All of them. People were committing their hearts to the Lord. They were confessing their sins. They were being baptized in water as a sign to show that they loved God and they were returning to God and they were living lives that were fully committed to, John, or to, to God. But this was all of Judea, all of Jerusalem. Now, there, there are some people who, who come into this church, and, and I, I know early service, the crowd isn't as big. You know, second service is usually a little bit bigger on, on those days when you're not having Snowmageddon promise to come in. And, and people, people come in, they say, man, this, this church is, is pretty big. And, and, and maybe sometimes this is a little bit of a bigger church compared to, to, to some others. But, but um, we aren't anywhere close to all. You know what I'm talking about? Like God is doing some good things and, and we're growing and people are, are changing and lives are being committed back to, to Jesus and people are being baptized and marriages are being restored, but, but we aren't even scratching the surface of all of Hastings. You know what I'm talking about? But this was John, all of Judea, all of Jerusalem. They all came to see him. And so John's stock is really on the rise. Like his star is shining bright. People are listening to him. He is massively popular. People are, are literally being changed by John's message in a way that they are quitting their jobs. They're walking away from their family business so that they can go and be an intern, a disciple of John. And they're following John around and, and they're, they're growing in John's ministry and, and John's ministry and his church really is growing incredibly fast. It'd be like, again, you know, culturally, you know, uh, similar today, like, like John is now being booked for conferences and church growth seminars, and, and he's the main speaker, and he's getting paid all the money to come share all of his wisdom and knowledge. This is John. His stock is rising. John chapter 1. Um, um, switch over to uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1. And, and um, just, just so you know, uh, the, book is, the book of John was not written by John the Baptist, it was written by uh, John, who was a disciple of Jesus. And so this is a different John. But John chapter 1 is speaking about John the Baptist's testimony. This is what it says. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leader sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? So again, let me, let me tell you what's happening here. Uh, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish priests, the temple leaders, basically they were the church leaders of the day. Um, they're a little put out by the influence and the impact and the popularity that John the Baptist is having. This guy, this crazy guy, he shows up out of nowhere. He has all of this impact, all of this influence. We need to know, dude, what's your story? What is your end game? What are you planning? What are your intentions here? 
Because what's happening is um, these church leaders, these Pharisees, they had a corner on the church market. They, they were the ones with all the power. They were the ones with the voice. They were the ones with the influence. And, and every week they would, they would go up or they would go into their synagogue, into their church, and they would look out and they would see that their crowd is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And every week they get reports that John's crowd is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so these guys are frustrated because they're losing market shares, they're losing people, they're losing influence, they're losing power, they're losing voice. And so they sent some of their, some of their people to John to say, figure out what this guy's game is. Figure out what's going on. We, we need to know what his story is because he's stealing all of our people. So go figure it out. Verse 20, John responds. And when they say, who are you, John, he comes right out and said, I am not the Messiah. John says, I'm not the Messiah. His crowds are growing huge. And he says to the people, he says to the leaders, I am not the Messiah. Which that response alone, that statement alone, shows the massive amount of impact that John is having in the region, right? That people are even considering or wondering if he is the Messiah shows the amount of impact that he is having in the region because, because that's what people are saying. He's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah. And John comes right out and says, look, I'm telling you, I'm not the Messiah. But he has massive popularity, massive impact. Verse 21, well then, who are you, they asked. Are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we were expecting? No. Verse 22, then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? Verse 23, John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah. This is what he does. He, he quotes scripture. He speaks Bible to these people who have given their lives to know the Bible. And so what he's doing, he's speaking their language. He's putting it in terms that they can easily understand and easily discern. And so he says this. He says, I'm a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. He speaks the words of Isaiah back to them. I'm a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. And, and what he's saying essentially is, I'm not the Messiah, I'm the forerunner to the Messiah. And so because you see all of this massive impact, because you see all of this life change that is surrounding me, I'm telling you that the Messiah is coming. And nobody knew that the Messiah was Jesus at that time, but he's saying he is coming. Like this is your sign. Everything is about to change. And I'm the sign that everything is about to change. And once the religious leaders were confident that John wasn't the Messiah, that he wasn't anyone special, that, that, that now they get upset again because his ministry is having a negative impact on their, their power. His ministry is having a negative impact on their influence. Their star is, is diminishing. John's is rising. And now they know, well, we're not fighting the Messiah here. So, so they change course. They change reason to get angry. They say, then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, well, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? So now they're attacking John's methods. They're attacking his ministry. 
They're, they're saying, well, you know, now we know that we can get mad at you. Now, now we know that you're just a man. You're not anything more. And so now they, they begin to question his character and, and all of this stuff. And they find all of these other reasons to get mad. They say, this isn't right what you're doing. It's heresy. And I find it funny. I've been in the church for a long time. I've been, my, my, my whole world is, is church. And, and my whole life is, is kind of, Believers and discipling believers and, and, you know, trying to understand the mindset and the mentality of churches and, and, and how to work and function within a church. And it's funny in the church, um, a lot of times people will begin to get upset when, when God begins to move in a real, genuine, powerful way. And, and they'll get upset when God begins to move because God moving doesn't look exactly like it did 50 years ago when God moved in my grandma's church. And so, and so instead of embracing the new thing that God wants to do in, in our day and in our age today in the new sort of technology things that we can do to reach more people, instead of embracing those things, we begin to question the character and the integrity of the leadership in the church. And I'm not saying this happens to me. I'm saying this happens all the time. We begin to question the character and the integrity of the leader, saying, well, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't act that way. And we look for all sorts of strange and crazy reasons to be upset when it's not necessarily uh, the man doing anything. It's God moving through the man. And, and listen, I think that as a church, if we are really hungry for more of God, and if we do mean it when we say, God, I want you to move in a way that I've never seen you move before, then we have to be ready to be uncomfortable in some of those things that God is going to do, to take us new, to, to see things that we've never seen before. We have to be ready and we have to give God access. And then we have to really be able to turn it over to God and say, God, whatever you have for us, I want, even if I've never seen it before, even if it's not the way my grandma used to do it or my grandpa used to do it, even if it's, even if it's a method that, that, that I might be initially uncomfortable with, if it doesn't compromise the gospel, let's do it to see lives changed and people added to the kingdom of God. And so that's kind of what's going on here. They're saying, you can't baptize. You have no right to baptize. Who told you you could do this? And so just to recap what's going on here, I know this is a, is a lot of Bible, and I know it kind of feels like history lesson here, but, but this is so good. Stay with me. John is the biggest thing to hit the religious world in the last 400 years. We, we've established that. John's influence is increasing. The Pharisees' influence is decreasing. And the Pharisees are freaking out and do whatever they can to regain popularity. So they are... are are spreading rumors and accusations about John to, to decrease his popularity so that theirs can increase again. That They want to stop his momentum. They want to regain control. They want that voice. They want the power. But all eyes are on John. John is all anybody is talking about. John is making huge waves in the religious world. And listen to what John says. This is the height of his popularity. People are hanging on his every word. They're listening. They are locked in to John. And he's speaking to the Pharisees, surrounded by the masses of people. John, or John chapter 1, verse 26, John told them this. John says, listen to me. I baptize with water. But right here, in this crowd, 
one of you, there is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry is going to follow mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. See, we read that a lot, but we don't realize the context surrounding that. That John is the biggest deal, the biggest thing that has happened in the church world for the last 400 years. Masses of people around him, they're thinking he's the Messiah, and John says, no, 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 listen. In this crowd, Somebody that's listening to the words that I'm speaking right now. You may be sitting right next to them. You may be standing next to them. It is somebody that is so awesome, so powerful, such a big deal that I'm not even worthy to be his slave. And, and, and I would love to have the job to, to get down on my knees and wash his feet and strap his sandals. But John says, I'm not even worthy of that. And the people looking at him are thinking, man, but John, you are the biggest thing that has ever happened in our lifetime in this church world John thinks John says you think I'm a big deal you think what I'm doing is amazing or awesome you think I'm having big impact there's somebody amongst this crowd that is so much better than me so much more of a big man I would be lucky to be his slave I'd be lucky if I was a servant John is saying no matter how good my resume is my resume is not even good enough to be his intern. The guy that's coming is such a big deal. It is literally going to just blow your mind. And, and, and if you stack my ministry, which, which you look around and you see thousands of people gathered around his ministry, if you stack my ministry up to his, my ministry is nothing compared to what his is going to be. And if John was smart... This would be the time that, that John should really capitalize on this influence. This is the time that John should be, you know, writing the books and, and you know, going to the conferences. Like, this is the time that, that John could really create a big name for himself. But he says, I'm nothing compared to what is coming. But not just what is coming in the future after I'm dead and gone. What is already here. I'm nothing compared to that. And again, I'm, I'm taking you through this scriptural journey and, and so we can fully embrace the context of this conversation. Are you guys with me? Is this all making sense? You following? Okay. So verse 29. So, so John says, I'm not the Messiah. Then John says, um, um, I'm a big deal, but, but I'm, I'm nothing compared to what is coming. Um, I can't even, I wouldn't even be his slave. And so that's where we are. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, everybody, look, look, look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. John, in this moment, identifies Jesus as the one who is so much greater than him that he couldn't even be a slave, he couldn't even tie his sandal. John says, look, 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 there he is. He's the one that's going to make me look small. He's the one that is going to change the world. He is the one that is going to take away the sin and deal with the sin issue for all of mankind. He is the one who existed long before me. And so in this, listen, you gotta understand what John is saying because John is older than Jesus. And John is saying he existed long before me. What John is speaking to is Jesus' divinity and at that point, nobody really saw Jesus as anything more than a carpenter's son. And so John is saying, look, you think I'm a big deal? This, there he is, right there, he's Jesus. Look at him, everybody look at him, everybody look at him. 
There's Jesus. He's the one who existed long before me. And he's speaking to his eternal qualities. He's speaking to the fact that Jesus is eternal. He's not just a man that was born in Bethlehem. He's eternal. He existed at the very, very, very beginning before anything else existed. Jesus existed. And when, when God said, let there be light, it was Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit all, all together saying, let there be light. John is saying he's the eternal one. He's far older than 30 years old. He's existed from the very beginning. He's speaking to all of this. And, and John is essentially saying he's coming. Pay attention to him. Watch him. He's not going to ride my coattails. This isn't Jesus um, riding my momentum. This isn't Jesus coming in after me. This is me being the forerunner of Jesus. But this was his plan from the very beginning. It's all about him. Everybody look. There's the Lamb of God. He's going to deal with the sin issue. Verse 31. John says this, I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Some of you didn't realize this, but listen. Then John testified. He said, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, listen to what God told him. God told him, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John says, I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. So when God called John out of the wilderness and told John to go baptize, one of the reasons why John was baptizing people was, yes, to allow people to go public with their faith so that they could um, um, you know, testify to God's saving grace in their life, but also, look at what Scripture says, John was looking for the Messiah. Right, let me, let me read this again. He says, I didn't know Jesus was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so think about, think about John. John is out baptizing hundreds, thousands of people, and every time he's baptizing, he's wondering, is this the one? Brings him up, nothing happens. Baptizes again, is he the one? Brings him up, nothing happens. Again, brings him up, nothing happens. But we know what happened when, when John baptized Jesus, right? He baptizes Jesus, and, and, and Scripture indicates that John had an, an idea, an inclination that, that Jesus was the Son of God. And, and, and so when he baptizes Jesus, that, that inclination is confirmed when, when the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and he hears the voice of God booming from heaven. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. There is no doubt in John's mind anymore that this is Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. You will know the Messiah when you see the Holy Spirit descend on him after his baptism. And so John is baptizing and he's searching. And now, think about this. At the height of his popularity, at the height of his influence, John finds the Messiah. And remember, John could have claimed the title of Messiah. He wouldn't have been the real one, but he could have at least claimed the title and people would have bought it. He could have claimed the title for Messiah for himself. People were asking, are you the Messiah? John says, I'm a nobody. Are you the Messiah? Are you the most important person in the history of the world? They ask him. He says, I'm a nobody. I'm a, I'm, I'm a nobody. The one you're looking for is that guy right there, Jesus. He's the son of God. So that's what John says. The following day, verse 33, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. Okay, so two people who quit their job to come and follow John in his ministry. John is standing there, followed by two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there's the Lamb of God. 
There's the Lamb of God. Verse 37. I want you to see this. See what happens next. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Okay, think through this, think through, think through this whole story. I, I know it's taken a long time, but we're getting there. Think through this whole story. John is the biggest thing that's happened in 400 years. John, the day before, says, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God. The next day, John is there with a couple of his, his disciples. He says, hey, there's Jesus again. There's the Lamb of God. These two disciples look at John and say, peace out, we're gone. And they go and follow Jesus. Now, the moment, think about this. From the moment John identified Jesus as the Messiah, his ministry his influence, his impact, and his popularity began to shrink. Have you ever thought about this before? The second John named the Messiah, all of it began to decrease. Everything began to become less and less and less. Even those who were disciples of John, closest to him, left him the moment they realized that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't hand in a resignation letter. They didn't give John two weeks notice, right? They just said, oh, that's him? We're out of here. We're not following you anymore. We're following Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I know myself enough to know that that would stink. And even if, if we're working for Jesus, and even if we're all on the same team, man, when people abandon you that fast, you're like, wait a second. Let me talk to you about your story, you little jerk. I remember when I first declared the message of, of the gospel or, or uh, talking about God, and you came stumbling into one of my meetings, and you were drunk. I remember cheating on your wife, your, your whole life was a mess, and, and then you recommit your heart to the Lord, and I baptize you, and I bring you in as one of my interns, and I give you ministry opportunity. I baptize your daughter for crying out loud, and the second you, you know that it's not me, it's him, you're gonna go following after him, that would sting me. You would probably respond like John, being like, well, that's what this is all about, and this is the story of the gospel, but that would sting me personally. It would hurt personally. Look what scripture said. John says, that's Jesus, that's the Messiah. Two disciples just walked away. Said, oh, we're, we're following him, see ya. One more passage of scripture, then, then I'm gonna be done. John 3, verse 22. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Remember, this was John's turf. Jerusalem, Judea, this is John's turf. This is where his ministry was growing. His ministry was booming. And it says, Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. Verse 23, at this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. Not as many because the crowds were diverting to Jesus, but people were still coming to him. Skip down to verse 26, it says this. So John's disciples came to him, to John, and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, <laughs> and I, I wonder if they were saying, John, do you remember when people thought you were the Messiah? That was pretty cool, right? Remember when people thought you were the greatest thing that has ever happened to humanity? And you told them, no, I'm not. You could have at least let that ride for a little bit. You, you, know, you could have at least you know, just, just let that hanging out there. You could have let them think that for a little bit. But you said no right away. And instead of just saying, no, it's not me, you pointed to a man and said, it's him. 
So John's disciples came to him again and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, listen to what they say. He's also baptizing people. You can see their irritation, right? He's doing our thing. We started the baptism thing, remember? Nobody was baptizing anybody, and then, and then you came along, you shared the message, and then we quit our jobs to follow you, and, and, and now we're ushering people into the water, and we're helping baptize too because you can't handle it. You know, baptism is our thing. It's, it's your name for crying out loud. You are John the Baptist. And this guy who you identified is now baptizing people. And listen to this next line. This is so important. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. We started it. Our influence, our power was growing, and now he's stolen our thing. He's baptized, and now everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. And you don't see it. We don't see this in Scripture, but I'm certain this was the exact same conversation that the Pharisees had about John the Baptist when they were looking across the synagogue and thinking, why is everybody going to him instead of coming to us? Now, verse 27, John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's, or it's it's it is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. Listen, even though Jesus' success was having a direct impact on John's influence with the people. He says, I'm filled with joy at his success. Verse 30, here's the key. This is the big thing that we've been building to this whole time. And I know it's taken a long time to get here. But if you have your Bibles open, circle it, star it, highlight it, whatever you want to do. But mark this down. This is what John says. Verse 30, he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. John doesn't say, as as high as I go, I get the ability to push Jesus even, even higher. No, John says, he must become more and more I must become less and less. His impact must increase. Mine must diminish. His impact must rise. Mine must shrink. He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. He must increase. I must decrease. That means we have to actively, listen, here's the application. That means we, you and I, have to actively and sometimes even painfully make room for more of Jesus. He must increase. I must be willing to decrease. John is telling his disciples who have left everything to follow him, in order for there to be more of Jesus, there has to be less of me. Because I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything to get in the way of more of Jesus. And the only thing that could get in the way of more of Jesus is if there was more of me. And so I'm going to make sure that there is less of me so there can be more of Jesus. You see, our response to more is always more. Our response to more is always more. I want more stuff, so I need more money. I, I, I need more money so I can afford more of a house with more garage space so I can fit more toys. We we always respond to more with more. Right? I'm feeling tired, so add an exercise routine to your regimen. 
more. We, we respond to more with more. John is saying in this life there's a secret that runs counter to anything that the culture will tell you. If you want more of Jesus, it's going to require less of you. More of him, less of me. More of him, less of me. And really in that, the only thing that we have direct control over is the less of me portion. And this sounds pretty simple until you actually try it and you realize that it's a lot harder than you think. And it's pretty simple is actually code for this could be the most difficult and at the same time the most important thing that you ever do spiritually. Less of me, less of me, less of me, more of Jesus, less of me. You can't have more of Jesus without the less of me portion. Stand your feet all across this place. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to go. But I do want to share with you some thoughts here real quick. I was thinking and praying through this. So what does this look like practically? Instead of just walking through this, this whole scripture, let's, let's, let's think through practically what less of me might look like. What can I do to have less of me so that I can make room for Jesus? Well, one of the things you can do is you can forgive. Listen, you can forgive. Unforgiveness is all about us, and I understand that sometimes people hurt us, and, and, it, and it makes, causes pain, and it's become a part of who you are, and the truth is, you don't really even know how you would act if you forgave that person who hurt you, but, but forgiveness is less of me, more of Jesus. Forgive. That's something you can do. Another thing you can do is apologize. That's less of me, more of him. You may be thinking, I'm not apologizing, you're crazy, I didn't do anything wrong. You may be in a situation where your relationships are so broken and so damaged, you don't know if they could ever be repaired. But if you would approach this as John, less of me, more of Jesus, give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to come in and mend your situation because you are saying, you know what, I'm not gonna build myself up, I'm not gonna take this stand, I'm going to humble myself and say less of me so Jesus can intervene in my situation. You watch and see how the Holy Spirit may not change your life, change your relationship, and change your potential legacy because of it. Less of me, more of Jesus. You may need to establish accountability. You can establish accountability. This is an acknowledgement that you've tried to work things out on your own and you can't do it. A lot of us, we don't want accountability because accountability is going to point out our failures and we don't want anybody to know that we're failures. Some of you need to hold yourself accountable. You need to find somebody who will speak into your life. Some of you need to find somebody who will, who will ask you, hey, what are you viewing online? What are you watching when, you're, when your spouse is away? How are you treating your spouse? How are you treating your kids? How, how are you with your time with the Lord? Some of you need to establish some accountability uh, and, and you need to humble yourself in that and say less of me, more of Jesus and, and I'm going to make myself accountable to these other people to speak into my life so that I can make sure that there's more room for Jesus in my life. More of Jesus, less of me. Some of you need to create some margin in your life. Some of you will never have time for more of Jesus because you don't or you'll never have more of Jesus because you don't have time for more of Jesus. You're on too many committees, you're, you're working too many jobs, you're, you're involved in too many things, you have no margin, no space for Jesus in your life, and you're here today, and that's great and awesome, but you have no time Monday through Saturday for Jesus because you're too busy. 
more of Jesus is going to require less of me. Some of you need to learn to say no to something so you can say yes to Jesus. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit mynsag.com.